So thank you. I think I think I'm going to blush for the next half an hour. Um, it's it's actually always really nice to come here because not only do I have a lot of good friends, but there are a lot of a lot of people here whose whose work has uh, influenced me and, and led the way sort of in, as as my career has begun and, and advanced. So thanks again for the invitation. Uh, let's see. So. Well, that's good. We'll be able to see all the immunofluorescence. So I probably don't need to do this introductory slide here, but just for the heck of it, I will because it'll, it'll get me going. So I, I'm going to talk today about leptin uh, and specifically about the neural mechanisms of leptin action. Now, as probably all of you know, leptin is a polypeptide hormone. It's actually a cytokine produced by adipocytes. And without getting into all of the niceties of the regulation of leptin production, the more adipose tissue you have stored, or the more triglyceride you have stored in adipose tissue, the more leptin you make. So leptin is sort of the adipocyte signal to the rest of the body, saying this is how much energy you have stored and you should act thusly. And it does that by acting on this special long form of the leptin receptor, LEPRB, predominantly in the brain. Um, and by activating the leptin receptor, it says that there's enough energy on board so you don't need to be that hungry and you don't need to eat the donuts. Um, and also, you have enough energy on board to do things that cost a lot in energetic terms. And those are things like reproduction and growth and having normal metabolic rate. The regulation of glycemic control is something that leptin appears to, to modulate. And then presumably, uh, at least partially, through actions outside of the, outside of the brain, leptin also acts on, uh, on the immune system and promotes immune function. If you don't have leptin, or in the case of a lot of the animals we study, if you don't have the leptin receptor, you get an opposite phenotype. You get animals that are very obese because they eat too much. And so they, get, they have a lot of uh, adipose tissue. And in a DBDB mouse, they, that means they have a ton of leptin. But in the absence of the leptin receptor, they can't perceive that that adipose tissue is there. And so they act as though they are starved with increased appetite, infertility, decreased growth, low metabolic rate type 2 diabetes, so on and so forth. So there are two things that my lab works on. The first is the molecular mechanisms of leptin receptor signaling and how specific leptin receptor signals control leptin action. And I'm actually not going to talk about that at all today, um, because most of the work that we've done on that has been published at this point in time. But I'm going to instead focus on neural mechanisms of leptin action, which for all intents and purposes means I wiggled this around this morning, so things may be a little out of order in a couple places. I'm going to say one thing about leptin receptor signaling. Um, and that is, um, so this is a cartoon of, of the leptin receptor. So leptin binds to the extracellular domain of the leptin receptor and activates a cascade of tyrosine phosphorylation mediated by JAK2. And normally, I would go and talk about all of the signals transmitted by the leptin receptor. But I just want to point one out today. And that is that as soon as JAK2 gets activated, it's tyrosine on the tail of the receptor, tyrosine 1138, gets phosphorylated. And that recruits a latent transcription factor called STAT3 to the tail of the receptor, which then gets phosphorylated and goes off and mediates transcriptional events. And the reason that I point this out is that this is actually a very useful assay that I'll use a couple times in the talk today for cells that actually express leptin receptor. Because you can immunohistochemically detect leptin induction of STAT3 phosphorylation to identify leptin receptor expressing cells. Um, and it's not like CFOS, where some cells will be activated by leptin and have CFOS, and some cells will not be, and so wouldn't have CFOS, and where you can also have transcriptional effects. This actually, because it happens right up against the receptor, defines leptin receptor expressing cells. So essentially, what neural mechanisms of leptin action means is where does leptin act? And we sort of backed our way into this a, a few years ago. Um, initially started thinking about the circuits that I think most people spend most of their time thinking about. And again, important circuits, uh, the melanocortin circuit, the POMC neurons in the arcuate nucleus, the NPY AGRP neurons, which oppose them in the arcuate nucleus. And actually, I'm not going to talk at all about those, but tell you about how we backed our way into this and what we've been trying to do to understand leptin action outside of the arcuate nucleus. So what we did, because actually initially we were interested in deleting signaling molecules specifically from leptin receptor neurons, is to make a leptin receptor cream mouse. 
And the way we did this was to put an internal ribosome entry site plus the coding sequences for Cree recombinase downstream of the long-form specific exon of the leptin receptor gene in mice. And then to make sure that this was working properly, we crossed these to the ROSA26 reporter line. Now, in the state of nature, this fairly ubiquitous promoter drives the expression of a neocassette, which doesn't do much for you. But because that's flanked by LOX-P sites, whenever you're in the presence of Cree recombinase, in our case, in leptin receptor expressing neurons, you pop out the neocassette, and now you have expression of green fluorescent protein. So in these leptin receptor EGFP mice, you have GFP expression in leptin receptor neurons. This is a sagittal section of these mice, so this way. And what you're seeing in all of the white is essentially all of the leptin receptor expressing neurons in the brain. So this down here is the arcuate nucleus, and there are a ton of leptin receptor expressing neurons there. But the point is that if you go through the brain and you count up all those leptin receptor expressing neurons, here's the arcuate. So there are as many leptin receptor neurons in the DMH as there are in the arcuate and also in the ventral premammillary. There are a lot in the lateral hypothalamus, in the DMH, so on and so forth. And so we said, well, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there that the arcuate nucleus is important for leptin action, but it doesn't make sense to us that we could explain all of leptin action based on 15 or 20 percent of the leptin receptor neurons in the brain. So we should try to figure out what some of these other populations of leptin receptor neurons do. So what I'd like to do today is tell you some vignettes about three populations of leptin receptor neurons. The first of them is this group in the ventral premammillary. And we chose that for several reasons. The first of them is that there are just a lot of leptin receptor neurons. And we figured if there are a lot of leptin receptor neurons, it's got to be doing something important. Uh, I should also say that all of the work that I'm about to show you on this and most of the work that I'm going to show you in my second vignette was done by a really extraordinarily talented graduate student who I'm going to make blush. She's sitting in the back there, Rebecca Leshen, who's now a postdoc with Don Pfaff over at the Rockefeller. So the ventral premammillary, in, in addition to being interested in it because there are a ton of leptin receptor neurons, was interesting for a couple of other reasons. So it's a, one of these sort of poor, unloved little nuclei that nobody studies much. But what was known about it is that it interconnects with a bunch of regions involved in the regulation of reproduction. That it is that a lot of neurons are activated by mating and sexual stimuli. Uh, that if you ablate the ventral premammillary, it'll disrupt the pheromonal stimulation of, of uh, LH, that's luteinizing hormone secretion. Um, that ablation of the ventral premammillary will dis disrupt the ability of ICB leptin to stimulate LH secretion and also blunts the decrease in food intake during the pro-estrus to estrus transition. And then Rebecca herself had shown that the ventral premammillary leptin receptor neurons are activated by leptin and by sexual odorants and that some of these directly synapse on GnRH neurons, which all led us to believe that this is going to be the place in the brain where leptin acts to regulate the reproductive axis. And so in order to address this issue, uh, well, so here's the model, right? Leptin is acting on the ventral premammillary leptin receptor neurons. They're talking to GnRH neurons, and voila. Very simple linear circuit. In order to address this question, Rebecca had to find something that was co-expressed with the leptin receptor in these neurons, and fairly uniquely in these neurons. And she came up with neuronal nitric oxide synthase, NOS1. And this is just immunohistochemistry showing you leptin-induced phosphostat-3, so evidence of leptin receptor expressing neurons, uh, with, and that's in the black, with then the NOS1 uh, immunofluorescence in green. And essentially about 90, 95% of the leptin receptor neurons in the ventral premammillary express NOS1. And this is just showing you that in a different way with our leptin receptor GFP mice in green, NOS1 in red, and there's the merge. And you can see that almost, almost all of them are actually NOS expressing. I should probably be honest at this point in time. I don't think I have a slide that shows this, but it turns out that there are a few leptin receptor NOS1 expressing neurons elsewhere in the brain. The ventral premammillary constitutes probably 80% of them, but there are a few, I'm going to say 6% of the arcuate, 10% of the DMH, 10% of the LH also co-express NOS1. Okay. So what Rebecca did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, 6% of the leptin receptor neurons in the arcuate. Yes, I should have been clear about that. Right. 
so I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to have Rebecca listen to it and correct me if I get this wrong. But my, my recollection is that if you determine define sensitivity by how long it takes a peripheral dose of leptin to activate STAT3 phosphorylation, it is a little bit behind the arcuate. So it's not, probably doesn't have that same access as the arcuate. It's easier to see the stimulation in the PMB than it is in really deep structures like the, the VTA or the, the RAPA nuclei or something there. So what Rebecca did was to make a NOS1 cream mouse, and she did this essentially the same way we did with the leptin receptor. We didn't want to get into transgene where we could have ectopic expression and so on and so forth. So she knocked an IRS Cree element into the final exon of the NOS1 locus. Um, and then she crossed those NOS1 free mice with these nice leptin receptor flox mice that Streams and Chua made a few years ago. So that what she ended up with was leptin receptor inactivation in specifically NOS1 expressing neurons. Um, and she could ask questions about the physiology of these animals. So the first thing, of course, or one of the first things that she looked at was reproductive function. And what I'm showing you here are uh, the onset of estrus. We're looking at three flavors of mice. We're looking at control mice, which are actually, this is a conglomeration of a whole bunch of different control genotypes, but they essentially look the same. Um, leptin receptor knockout mice, which actually, because of some unfortunate uh, germline deletion events that we had, turned out to be litter mates of these controls and these NOS1 knockouts. So what we ended up with were mice that were obviously delayed in terms of estrus onset and dis displayed decreased fertility, but weren't as bad off as a complete DBDB animal. What about, um, what about body weight and metabolism? Well, here we actually got a surprise, two surprises, in fact. So the first thing that Rebecca saw was that when she looked at the females, uh, here you've got the controls, there you've got essentially the littermate DBDBs, and then here you've got the NOS1 knockouts. So first of all, we were surprised that we had a metabolic phenotype coming out of this and that the, the animals were heavy. And we were surprised because we were, of course, thinking very linearly in terms of reproductive function for the ventral premammillary. The other surprise that we got is that although these sort of fell squarely between the DBs and the, and the controls, when we looked at the males, the male NOS1 knockouts are as heavy as the male DBDB animals. And in fact, if you look at other parameters of um, uh, of metabolism, you see the same thing. So here we are looking at body fat, and you can see that the females, uh, the NOS1 knockouts lie sort of intermediate between the, the controls and the DBDBs, and lean mass goes the same way. Whereas in terms of fat mass, you can't tell the difference between the NOS1 and the complete DBDB, and that's true for lean mass as well. You get into food intake, and again, the NOS1 females are eating a little bit more than the wild types, not nearly as much as the DBDBs. If anything, the NOS1 knockouts are actually eating more than the DBDBs on the male line. Glucose homeostasis, again, the girls are not completely normal, but they're close to it, whereas the males are completely indistinguishable from their DBDB littermates. Which suggests, in fact, that these leptin receptor neurons uh, in the ventral premammillary, although technically we can't exclude the few leptin receptor NOS1 neurons outside the ventral premammillary, are not involved in this nice linear circuit that we had postulated and hoped for. Certainly there is some role of these neurons in the regulation of reproductive function, but there is also an important and sexually dimorphic role for these neurons in the regulation of anorexia and metabolism. So we suspect, obviously, there, there must be other projection targets for these neurons, and we are busily working on exactly how leptin receptor NOS neurons in the ventral premammillary are controlling all of the things that they control and why they would be doing different things in males and females. And you'll have to stay tuned for the answer to that. Okay, so that's my short vignette on the ventral premammillary. We have some recent data that I didn't have time to throw in there, so if you have specific questions about that, like did you look at X or Y, feel free to ask me later on. So the next thing I want to talk about is the, uh, is the reward system. And let me see if I can do a, a little song and dance about why we started looking at the reward system. So there's this concept out there of something called leptin resistance. And it can be defined a variety of different ways. And in fact, I don't think that there are any two people that could uh, agree on a common definition of leptin resistance. For some people, it means 
you know, here's a fat animal or a fat human, and as a consequence of the obesity, there's lots of leptin. They're not responding to the leptin that makes them leptin resistant. Or you could say, well, here's an obese human or mouse or whatever. You give it a big dose of leptin, and it doesn't stop eating the way it's supposed to. So that is leptin resistance. But at the core of it, you know, the real question is, why do humans and animals get fat, especially when exposed to a high-fat diet? Um, and do we have to try to explain leptin resistance in terms of you know, cellular signals and so on and so forth? And thinking about it in perhaps not a particularly sophisticated way, um, one potential mechanism of leptin resistance is just that we eat because there's a lot of food around us that tastes good. And I guess what I'm saying is that you know, there, there are two things that drive you to eat or not eat in the brain, sort of in terms of general biopsychological constructs. One of them is satiety. And the arcuate nucleus, POMC and AGRP neurons, uh, are important in the regulation of satiety, which they control in concert with the brainstem. Satiety is this sort of, uh, I guess, loosely defined notion that you know, when you are full, you don't feel like eating anymore. So like at the end of Thanksgiving dinner, when you've had way too much turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and stuff, you can't possibly eat another bite. That's satiety. Now, there's something that happens after that, though, on Thanksgiving, right, which is after you've cleared off the dishes, the pies come out, and you have a slice of pie anyway. And you don't have a slice of pie because you're not full anymore. You actually have a slice of pie in, it, it, even though you are still as full, and this, you know, the slice of pie actually may make you feel sick. But the reason you have the pie is because the pie tastes good. And so what we're talking about there is the hedonic impact of food. And what we're interested in is how the hedonic impact of food is regulated, and more specifically, how might leptin modulate the hedonic impact of food. And so although we're not neuroscientists in my lab, or at least we didn't used to be neuroscientists in the lab, we started thinking about the mesolimbic dopamine system. So the mesolimbic dopamine system is the system that mediates uh, a variety of things uh, associated with, uh, with wanting and liking. Uh, although it also mediates sort of uh, aversive learning. So at its, oops, at its core, it's a set of dopaminergic neurons in the ventral tegmental area, which project to a variety of places, but I'm going to point out here specifically the striatum and the nucleus accumbens, which is the structure in the brain that is most commonly associated with wanting. Uh, that's, I think, the biopsychology term for that is incentive salience. There are also projections to the prefrontal cortex and projections to the amygdala, which is, for want of a better term, the fear and loathing center. Right? This is the, the, the place where aversive learning happens. So it turns out that there are leptin receptor neurons in the ventral tegmental area. And we're not, I should point out, the first people to realize this. There are a number of nice papers that came out over the past, oh, five or six years pointing out that, that these are there. And this is just our picture of them. Actually, I think it's Rebecca's picture of them again. Um, in black and white showing the leptin receptor neurons here in the, in the ventral tegmental area and some of the uh, associated structures. Here, now we've got the leptin receptor neurons stained in green, and she's staining for tyrosine hydroxylase, which is a marker for dopaminergic neurons. And you can see that in the substantia nigra and in the ventral tegmental area, most, although not all, of the leptin receptor neurons co-localize with tyrosine hydroxylase. So these are actually dopamine dopaminergic leptin receptor expressing neurons. So they're leptin receptor neurons that are, by definition, part and parcel of the mesolimbic dopamine system. So in order to understand more about, and this may seem like a tangent for a minute, but bear with me. In order to understand more about leptin action in the brain, we realized we had to understand not only where the leptin receptor neurons are, but who they're talking to. And in order to do this, uh, we made a different mouse model. It works the same way, essentially, as the leptin receptor GFP. So we have a leptin receptor Cree. We cross it with the Rosa 26 GFP, but this is actually our version of the GFP, which has a little pink F on the end of it. And the little pink F is farnesylation. So that's a lipid moiety which drives the green fluorescent protein to the membrane. So while standard cytoplasmic GFP does a really good job of showing you the soma, it actually doesn't show cytoplasm-poor things like dendrites particularly well. But of course, a, a dendrite or an axon is, is mostly, uh, mostly membrane. And so the farnesylated GFP, which goes to the membrane, will actually allow you to visualize those. And so here, these leptin receptor farnesylated GFP mice, we get farnesylated GFP expression in all the leptin receptor neurons, but in a way that will show us all of the projections. And what I'm showing you here 
is a half brain of the leptin receptor GFP and a half brain of the leptin receptor for an isolated GFP. And here we're at the level of the hypothalamus. You can see the arcuate nucleus in the lateral hypothalamic area. Not much going on in the amygdala. Moving forward, that's the extended amygdala called the IPAC. Not much there. And this is the nucleus accumbens. So there are no real leptin receptor neurons within the receiving end of the mesolimbic dopamine system, if you will. On the other hand, if you look at the farnesylated GFP, you see a big load of projections in the central amygdala and in the IPAC, which is the rostral extension of the central amygdala. Although, interestingly, there turn out not to be projections into the nucleus accumbens, or at least if there are, there are very few. So that gave us two questions, right? One of them is, where are these projections into the amygdala coming from? And what's up with the fact that we have leptin receptor neurons in the VTA, but we don't have projections from leptin receptor neurons into the nucleus accumbens? And so what Rebecca did was to take advantage of, of uh, a variant on this Cree-inducible theme that we turned into an adenovirus. So this is the same thing as the transgenic model, except that it's an adenovirus. It's got a, a floxed transcription blocking cassette, and in this case, followed by farnesylated GFP. What this allows us to do, or what it allowed Rebecca to do, was to inject this stereotoxically specifically into the ventral tegmental area so that this virus infects all of the neurons in the ventral tegmental area. But only in the leptin receptor Cree-expressing neurons do we pop out that transcription blocking cassette and get tracing from the farnesylated GFP. So now she's tracing forward from all the leptin receptor neurons in the VTA. And this is essentially what she saw. So what you see here is the injection site stained for GFP. And then this is a representation of where she saw all the projections moving rostrally in the brain. And the projections are these big red doohickeys here. And the point is that she sees tons and tons of projection in the central amygdala and the IPAC, which again is the rostral extension of the central amygdala. But by the time she gets out into the nucleus accumbens, there really aren't many projections left. And what I'm showing you here is a, is a picture of that. So here is central amygdala. And you can see that if, if you do a high magnification, you see the sort of beads on a string looking thing, uh, which suggests that they're actually making active synapses there. Same thing in the, uh, in the IPAC, but again, just not much going in the nucleus accumbens. I think, I'm not sure you can see it, but the yellow arrow shows that there's like a little projection or two right there. So then, what that suggests is that the leptin receptor neurons in the VTA, which are dopaminergic, are not actually pro projecting into the, um, into the nucleus accumbens, but are projecting to the amygdala, which gets us scratching our heads and thinking about you know, what's going on in the amygdala. What we'd really like to know is understand what are the cellular targets of the leptin receptor neurons in the, in the central amygdala. And so to get at that, we have another mouse model, which we call the EyesWAP mouse. Again, this is now a genetic model. Uh, which, again, transcript blocks transcription blocking cassette, and then downstream of that, we've got wheat germagglutinin. So when we cross that to the leptin receptor Cree mice, we get wheat germagglutinin expressed specifically in leptin receptor expressing neurons. And I think here is a place where I needed to have a next slide, and I don't have one. Oh, no, I do. Good. So why wheat germagglutinin? So when I was a graduate student with Morris White, we used wheat germagglutinin to partially purify leptin receptor from the membranes of CHO cells. And the property of the leptin receptor that does that is that it's essentially a glycoprotein binding protein. So if you, if you express this stuff in neurons, essentially what you do is you package the wheat germ into these synaptic vesicles. And then when the neuron fires, it releases these synaptic vesicles. You release the wheat germagglutinin into the synaptic cleft. It binds to glycoproteins on the target membrane and is internalized and concentrated in that postsynaptic cell. So essentially, Using this system, we get to see not only the leptin receptor neuron, but we get to see the neurons that are in synaptic contact with the leptin receptor neurons. And so this is a picture of, these, uh, of the brain of one of these mice. You can see there's a bunch of wheat germagglutinin down here in the arcuate and in the lateral hypothalamic area. This is the central nucleus of the amygdala. That's a blow up of the central nucleus of the amygdala. And this is some staining by Darren Opland in the lab showing that a lot of these wheat germagglutinin neurons actually co-localize with CART, cocaine and regulated transcripts in the central nucleus of the amygdala. In fact, it turns out that if you look at the expression of CART in OB-OB animals, it's through the roof. It's three times higher 
than it would be in a wild-type animal. And if you give those animals replacement leptin for, for 24 hours, the CART expression in the central amygdala goes down. So what we think is going on with these VTA leptin receptor neurons is that they project to the central nucleus of the amygdala and the IPAC. There are a few leptin receptor neurons sort of more than in the midline structures of the, of the midbrain, uh, like in the rostral linear nucleus, which project dominantly to the IPAC, but which also send a few projections into the nucleus accumbens. But this dopaminergic projection really seems to be about regulating CART and perhaps other things in the central amygdala. And given what we know about the central amygdala from work of many other people, we would suggest that this pathway is more likely to be involved in the regulation of anxiety and anxiety-like behaviors than it would be in wanting and reward. So that's interesting for us, but that's not really what we were looking for when we started this. So what, we're, what we were still looking for at this point in time was then to see if there are other ways for leptin receptor neurons to impact the mesolimbic dopamine system. And fortunately, a few years earlier, uh, Gina Leininger, who's a uh, postdoc now, um, junior faculty member uh, associated with the lab, started working on leptin receptor neurons in the lateral hypothalamic area. The lateral hypothalamic area was interesting to us for a couple of reasons. First of all, if the arcuate nucleus is a satiety center, which means when you ablate it, animals stop having satiety and start eating like crazy, the lateral hypothalamic area is a feeding center. So if you ablate the lateral hypothalamus bilaterally, you get animals that just don't care about eating anymore. The other thing that's interesting about the lateral hypothalamic area is it has some really cool neurons in it. Some neurons that express melanin concentrating hormone and some uh, neurons that express orexin. And both of these neurons are known to project fairly widely, but among their projections are projections into the ventral tegmental area and into the nucleus accumbens. Um, and in fact, orexin neurons, if, if you put orexin into the ventral tegmental area, you can actually stimulate feeding and a variety of other, uh, of other behaviors. So these are uh, Gina's leptin receptor neurons in the LHA. This is just an early picture that she took of them, uh, co-localized with phosphostat-3. Obviously, no phosphostat-3 co-localization with PBS, but with leptin, they all light up with red nuclei, so showing that these are not just green neurons that are sitting there because of some genetic artifact. There actually is live leptin receptor in there. She next asked whether the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA were MCH neurons or orexin neurons, and the answer is no. So this is leptin receptor in green and MCH in red, and you can see that they're not even co-distributed within the LHA. If you look at leptin receptor and orexin, they turn out to be in the same distribution pattern but they're not the same neurons. They're, there's not a single neuron that overlaps in terms of expression. So what are they? Well, at this point in time, we didn't know exactly what they were, but we got some GAD GFP mice. These are mice that express green fluorescent protein in GABAergic neurons. And we did phosphostat-3 co-localization with them. And phosphostat-3 is in red. So you can see, essentially, all of the neurons that have red nuclei, so all of the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA, express GABA. So they are inhibitory neurons. What do they do and where do they go? So this is the, the who do they talk to question. So what Gina did was she used that uh, adenovirus EGFPF, uh, which she put into the LHA of these animals. So again, we're tracing now just from the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA. That's her injection site in green. And you can see that there are a ton of projections within the lateral hypothalamus. Um, and then if you look outside the hypothalamus to try to figure out where all of, the, all of the projections are going, the place that has the densest population of projections is actually in the ventral tegmental area. Whether these neurons function is a, a sort of the, I mean, function to do things that we're really interested about, like the regulation of body weight, food intake behavior, so on and so forth is the question that we're interested in about in the long term. But of course, at the time when Gina did these studies, we were just trying to figure out how interested we should be. And we didn't actually have a genetic way of deleting leptin, leptin receptor from those neurons. So what Gina did was she took OB-OB animals, because of course they're very sensitive, and you don't have to compete with endogenous leptin. Um, and she put a unilateral cannula down into the, into the lateral hypothalamic area. And then she put in a teeny tiny dose of leptin, 250 picograms. 
And she calibrated this in two ways. So the first was she did this weird calculation that, okay, I'm not actually sure I buy the calculation, but the idea was that this was supposed to be in the volume of distribution of the lateral hypothalamus about a physiologic concentration of leptin. And the other calculation was actually uh, not a calculation, but um, looking at the spread of phosphostat-3 after the injection of leptin. And this is the highest dose that she could use where she did not get spread of STAT-3 phosphorylation outside of the LHA. So she put the, the dose of leptin in, and you can see that over 24 hours in the OB-OB mice, it significantly decreased food intake, and it significantly decreased body weight relative to controls. Here I have to back up and tell you about some data from another group that came out about the time that we were doing these studies. This is from the group of Jeff and Terry Flyer up at the BI Veganist. And what they'd shown is that OB-OB uh, mice have big defects in their mesolimbic dopamine system. And at the core of this defect was a decrease in dopamine in their neurons. And a, a, that was probably because of a decrease in tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the enzyme that is the first committed step in dopamine synthesis. And so I'm just showing you our version of their data, which is if you dissect the ventral tegmental area out of OB-OB animals and look to see how much tyrosine hydroxylase expression there is, it's way down. So Gina knew this at the time that she did that feeding experiment. And so when she was done with the feeding experiment in the animals, she dissected the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens to look for tyrosine hydroxylase and dopamine. And what you can see is that leptin actually increases tyrosine hydroxylase expression by about twofold, but just on the side of the brain where the cannula was. And it increases dopamine concentration in the nucleus accumbens, but again, just on the side where the cannula was. On the other hand, if you do that same experiment by putting the leptin into the ventral tegmental area, nothing happens. No change in tyrosine hydroxylase expression. So where she was at this point in time, she had a, a group of uh, GABAergic leptin receptor neurons in the LHA. They respond to leptin. They have some projections within the LHA, but they have this really cool projection down into the ventral tegmental area. And leptin action by these neurons regulates things that we really care about, tyrosine hydroxylase expression, dopamine content, feeding, body weight, so on and so forth. So the next question Gina wanted to ask was, what are these local projections all about? Are they regulating orexin neurons or MCH neurons? And so the first way she went about asking that was just to go back to this wheat germ agglutinin expressing leptin receptor uh, mouse, where we're now going to see wheat germ agglutinin and leptin receptor neurons and in non-leptin receptor neurons that are in contact with them, and say, well, what can we see in the LHA? And what I'm showing you here, and I'm not sure this is projecting perfectly, but you can see there are GFP expressing leptin receptor neurons, there are wheat germ agglutinin expressing neurons. A bunch of these are co-localized. But there are also wheat germ-containing neurons in the LHA that do not contain the leptin receptor. It turns out, if you look at MCH and wheat germagglutinin, you can find MCH neurons that also contain wheat germagglutinin. And you can find orexin neurons that contain wheat germagglutinin, suggesting that there are leptin receptor neurons somewhere in the brain that are contacting both the MCH and the orexin neurons. That's not shocking. Right? Leptin is known to regulate both of these types of neurons. And the real question is, for us anyway, what are the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA doing? And so we use this other tracing virus that we made. This is essentially that same transgene, but turned into an adenovirus now, where you've, again, got this uh, flox transcription blocking cassette followed by wheat germ agglutinin. Gina stereotactically injected it into the LHA of leptin receptor Cree animals. So now she's putting wheat germ agglutinin specifically in leptin receptor neurons in the LHA so that we can see them and their downstream contacts. And when she does this and she looks here, wheat germ agglutinin in green and MCH in red, when she looks for the co potential co-localization of the green with the red, she sees both of them around, but they actually never co-localize, suggesting that the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA actually aren't talking to MCH neurons. On the other hand, when she does that with orexin, it turns out that a ton of the leptin receptor neurons in the, uh, sorry, the wheat germ expressing neurons uh, in the LHA do co-express orexin, suggesting that the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA are talking to the orexin neurons. But does this circuit actually do anything functionally? So here I have to take a, a little bit of a step back and co 
correct a misperception in the literature. So the, the misperception in the literature is that leptin inhibits uh, orexin neurons and decreases orexin expression. So that's half true. So clearly, leptin inhibits orexin neurons, and I'm showing you that oops, on the bottom. So what we're looking at here is animals that were fed, fasted and given PBS or fasted and given leptin. We're looking at orexin neurons in red and CFOS, which is a marker of neuronal activation in green. And you can see when you fast animals, these neurons go on like crazy. But when you fast them in the presence of leptin, the neurons aren't firing anymore. So yes, it looks like leptin inhibits the firing of orexin neurons. But actually, it does something completely opposite to orexin expression. So this is take an OBOB animal and give it IP leptin for 24 hours and look at gene expression. This is in a microdissected uh, hypothalamus. So you can see POMC expression goes up in the arcuate nucleus. Not surprising. SOX3 expression goes way up in the arcuate nucleus. Not surprising. Orexin goes up in the LHA. Not surprising if you actually look at the primary data in the literature, which I think is mostly consistent with this. So then what happens if we take an OBOB animal and we put that same teeny tiny dose of leptin just into the lateral hypothalamus? Well, nothing obviously happens to POMC expression or SOX3 expression because we're not putting the leptin into the arcuate nucleus. On the other hand, orexin expression now goes up between 20 and 25 fold. So this looks to us like a functional circuit, at least using this pharmacologic method of injecting leptin into the LHA of an OBOB animal. So we've got a slightly more complicated circuit where now maybe these leptin receptor LHA neurons can get to the ventral tegmental area in a couple different ways. One via this direct projection, and one in an indirect projection via the orexin neurons. But really, we're molecular geneticists, and we don't want to play around with these cannulas and the pharmacology and so on and so forth. What we'd really like to do is to find something else that's expressed in these lateral hypothalamic leptin receptor neurons that we can use to genetically ablate leptin receptors specifically from those neurons. So Gina did a heroic study. And I'm going to summarize it in this one slide. Basically, you know, microdissected a ton of LHAs from OBOB animals and leptin-treated OBOB animals and ran through a whole bunch of candidates and at the end of the day decided that the neuropeptide neurotensin looked like it ought to be in leptin receptor neurons in the LHA. And this is the first co-localization experiment she did with neurotensin in red and leptin receptor GFP in green. And you can see that actually a lot of leptin receptor neurons in the LHA do co-localize with neurotensin. In fact, about 60% of them do. Uh, and that there's no leptin receptor neurotensin co-localization anywhere in the brain. So what did Gina do? Well, the same thing that we always do, right? We make neurotensin-free, again, with an iris cree noggin cross it to the leptin receptor flocks that Streamson made a couple of years ago. And in this case, we're inactivating leptin receptor neurons, uh, leptin receptor in neurotensin neurons, which are essentially localized to 60% of the leptin receptor neurons in the LHA. Um, and this is just to show you what those animals look like in terms of phosphostat-3 expression. So here's a control in the LHA. You've got neurotensin, uh, leptin receptor now, neurotensin in green and phosphostat-3 in red. And you can see that a lot of the neurotensin neurons in the control actually co-localize. Not all of them, only about 40, 50, well, no, I think it's about 60% of them co-localize. In the knockouts, I think you can see that there are still a few red nuclei, so we haven't killed all the leptin receptor in the LHA, just the stuff that's associated with neurotensin, because now none of the green neurons have red phosphostat-3. In the arcuate, there's no co-localization. In the DMH, there's no co-localization. And so essentially, the knockout and the control look the same in the ARC and the DMH and everywhere else that we looked. So what does leptin do to the neurotensin neurons? Well, we're not electrophysiologists, but uh, Young Wan Zhou, who's actually over at um, Einstein with Streamson, uh, is an electrophysiologist and was kind enough to help us out. When he recorded from the neurotensin neurons in the lateral hypothalamus uh, and looked at the response to leptin, he essentially saw two populations of neurons. One that was activated by leptin, so depolarized and fired more, and the other that underwent a long-term um, hyperpolarization in response to leptin. And this is just showing you the controls, right? There's a group that is depolarized by leptin and a group that's hyperpolarized by leptin. When you go into the knockouts, you only see neurons that are hyperpolarized by leptin. That's, oops, that's all they saw, which suggests that 
there are a bunch of different ways that leptin can get to neurotensin neurons in the lateral hypothalamus, but the direct effect is a depolarizing or activating effect. So what's the phenotype of these animals? Well, it turns out that they weigh a bit more than the controls, and that's because they have more adipose tissue than controls. Lean mass as a percent of body mass is down, but overall lean mass isn't different. Leptin is increased, and food intake is increased, but really, we can only see this increase in food intake, and it's a very modest increase in food intake. We only see this in very, very young animals. VO2 is down, however, and actually activity is way down uh, in these animals. When Gina did tracing, again using the, the farnesylated GFP virus, um, she saw lots of projections within the LHA. And there are projections down in the ventral tegmental area, but it doesn't look as dense. I know this is a little subjective, but it doesn't look as dense as what we saw with the leptin receptor free. Suggesting to us that the main projections for the neurotensin neurons within the LHA may actually be intra-LHA projections. And in fact, when she did the, the wheat germaglutinin, uh, pre-inducible wheat germaglutinin virus into the LHA, she saw lots of co-localization with orexin which suggested that this could be the mechanism by which leptin inhibits the erexin neurons. Now here, am I doing this right? Okay, I have to pause and like do a real song and dance before I show you the data. So let's think about if you had the hypothesis, which we did, that leptin receptor neurotensin neurons project onto erexin neurons, and that leptin, leptin activating the GABAergic neurotensin neurons inhibits erexin neurons. If you had that hypothesis, what would you expect? Well, you would expect under normal circumstances, what happens is you take a normal mouse, you fast the mouse, leptin goes away, and as a consequence, the neurotensin neuron stops firing and the orexin neuron becomes active. So what that means is that in our knockout animals, they should not be able to detect the decrease in leptin that occurs when you fast an animal. So we would expect no change in the activity of orexin neurons. I go through that because actually, originally when we didn't think it through very carefully, we were like, ah, oh, you know, they're going to be firing like crazy. But that's not what happens. So control neurons, uh, fed animals, fasted animals, obviously the orexin neurons go on like crazy in fasting. In the knockouts, quiet and quiet. And that's just the quantification of it. And in fact, if you look now to see what happens to um, body weight and orexin expression under the 24-hour the stimulation paradigm, the control animals, you give them 24 hours of leptin, they lose a bunch of weight. Knockout animals, eh, not so much. And orexin expression, again, you give the control animals a big dose of, of, of leptin, orexin expression in the LHA goes up, six, it goes up about threefold, and no change in the knockout animals. So this set of neurons really looks like the way that leptin is geared up to regulate the orexin neurons. Sure. So let, let me see. So, right, I mean, that, that would be our hypothesis. So we know that there's at least one other neurotransmitter in these neurons, right? There's not just GABA, but there's neurotensin. In fact, for a long time, we had the hypothesis, which I think is still a cool hypothesis, just wrong, that um, GABA inhibits the orexin neuron, and neurotensin actually increases orexin expression. Turns out it's not neurotensin. But we know that there are other transmitters in these neurons, and so we think it's probably one of the other transmitters. <coughs> By transmitter, I mean neuropeptide. So what about the mesolimbic dopamine system? Well, again, there are a lot of ways of looking at the mesolimbic dopamine system. If you go back to Jeff and Terry Flyer's paper in 2006 on leptin and the control of the mesolimbic dopamine system, probably the best assay they had was a change in sensitivity to amphetamine. What amphetamine does is it, really, it reverses the dopamine transporter, so all the dopamine that's sitting there in the nerve terminal essentially gets spit out, and you get this big increase in locomotor activity. So we did that assay in the controls and in the knockouts. So you can see when we put them into the, into the activity chamber, the, obviously the knockouts are moving around less than the controls, as I showed you before. 
you give them that mock saline injection just, just to make sure there's no difference in stress response, and there isn't. And actually, by the time you get to the point of the amphetamine, there's no difference in activity between these animals. But once they get the amphetamine, the controls just go gonzo, and the knockouts are only about half as active. So this suggested to us, fabulous. We have, we have hit it. And we were sure that when we looked at the expression of tyrosine hydroxylase and looked at dopamine content, that there was going to be a huge difference, which there wasn't. So what we see is tyrosine hydroxylase expression in the knockouts and controls exactly the same. Dopamine content in the nucleus accumbens also exactly the same, which was not what we were looking for, but, but there you have it. So fortunately, we have um, a collaborator, uh, Manos Pothos up at Tufts, who really knows the mesolimbic dopamine system back and forth. And so what he did is, is uh, evoked dopamine release with amperometry and slices. And what he shows is that in the knockouts, there's a decrease in peak amplitude and an increase in half-life of dopamine in the synapse. And essentially what that means is that there is more active dopamine transporter in the wild types than in the controls. So we've changed not the amount of dopamine that's there, but a finer point in dopamine regulation which is dopamine transport. And as it turns out, uh, there's actually a nice paper that came out of Bob Kennedy's lab at the University of Michigan just this past year, saying that if you give uh, leptin to normal rats, not OB-OBs now, that what you do is increase the activity of the dopamine transporter. So this is probably an expression of that same system now working through the lateral hypothalamic dopamine nodes. So at the end of the day, here's, here's our um, Here's our revised and obviously less linear model than when we started. So leptin acts in the LHA in two populations of neurons. One contains GABA, and we don't know if there's another transmitter in there. We suspect that those guys are the ones that project dominantly into the VTA. Leptin receptor neurons that contain GABA and neurotensin project dominantly onto orexin neurons, and that seems to have something to do with the regulation of the mesolimbic dopamine system, probably through the regulation of dopamine transporters. And overall, Leptin action on this system is important for the regulation of locomotor activity, the control of orexin neurons, and then a variety of finer aspects of mesolimbic dopamine control that we obviously still have more work to do to understand in a longer, in a longer term. There are leptin receptor neurons that are dopaminergic that live in the VTA. They don't actually project to the nucleus accumbens, but they project to the extended amygdala and regulate card expression, and we would postulate are involved in the control of anxiety-like behaviors. I guess before I end, just one more proselytizing note, which is there are lots of populations of leptin receptors, leptin receptor expressing neurons in the brain. Um, they're important groups in the arcuate nucleus, but there are as many in the DMH. There are lots in the LHA, and I think only by understanding what each population of neurons is doing in response to leptin, both in terms of how it integrates with the neural circuitry and in terms of what physiology it mediates downstream. Only then will we really have a handle on how leptin acts at a, at a neural mechanistic level. The other thing I need to do is to say thank you to all of the people who actually really did this work. Um, I mentioned Rebecca. That's her picture there, but you can see her in the back. Um, and she did uh, the, the ventral premammillary stuff. And uh, what are you doing with your fingers, Rebecca? <laughs> um, she did the stuff with the ventral premammillary and also essentially most of the stuff with the ventral tegmental area. Uh, and Gina, uh, along with some help from, from Gwen and Darren, uh, did most of the stuff in the lateral hypothalamic area. And we've got a great group of collaborators. I think I've used up more than my allotment of time, so I'm not going to run down through all of them. But thanks for your attention. I'd be happy to take any questions. Oh, NNOS. NNOS, yeah. So we haven't run the reproductive phenotype of those animals to ground yet. But the, the things that, I mean, because you can't do Easter cycling in a male, they really object. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we've looked at, we've done testes weight. We've done uh, testes histology. Uh, we've done a little bit of breeding. And we haven't seen big defects. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have one hand-waving explanation given to me by way of Rich Simmerling. So Rich actually has a historic interest in the ventral premammillary, as it turns out. Yeah, right. So he has, and I don't think he's actually shown these data anywhere, but he has some really striking um, track tracing data from the ventral premammillary. And it turns out that developmentally, uh, especially, you can see big differences in the projections from the ventral premammillary in males versus females. In females, it stays very, uh, very ventromedial along that sort of ventromedial control column in the hypothalamus. Um, whereas in the males, there's a much larger projection into the DMH and the paraventricular. So the hypothesis that we're working on right now is that it's the difference in where those neurons are projecting that's really giving us the difference in, in downstream phenotype. I'm saying the males are fertile. But, you know, I mean, males are less, these are mutts, right? And males are less sensitive to leptin in terms of the reproductive axis anyway. So I don't, I don't want to really, we tend not to do our breeding that way, but you can. So I, I have to say, so in all of her, uh, all of her lesion data were done in females. So first of all, you would expect to see less of a phenotype in those animals than in these. And second of all, um, most, uh, so I guess she did a reactivation. Her lesioning data could hit a bunch of different neurons. Yeah, I'm going to have to hand, my, hand wave my way around that because I don't completely understand it. I mean, we can't rule out, and I have to be honest about this, we can't rule out that the you know, that those few leptin receptor neurons that we see co-expressing NOS in the arcuate or in the DMH are making some contribution. But for a handful of neurons, that would be a hell of a contribution. So we don't know that, although in terms of the regulation of the mesolimbic dopamine system, we've, we've started collaborating a little with uh, Peggy Negi, who's at, at Michigan and is very interested in the modulation of dopamine release and dopamine transporters. And she believes that the phenotype that we're looking at in the nucleus accumbens of these animals is going to be D2 mediated. Right. So in the VTA, we haven't looked in the lateral hypothalamus. I'm not sure that they're going to co-localize, but we just haven't looked. Just haven't. Thank you. Thank you.